0: Good morning. Morning. Today's reading is from Acts 16, verses 16 through 40. You can follow along on page 6 of your bulletin if you'd like. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left.
1: It's a joy to have Kevin back reading scripture after his brief newborn hiatus. (laughs) Blessings to you and Courtney and family. But let's turn our attention briefly uh, to this passage. Uh, But let me say a word of prayer. Let's gather up our faith together and let's pray. Jesus, we believe your words when you describe this as a living word. Not just ink on a page. But words by which your Holy Spirit comes and gives life. Changes lives. Jesus, I pray that you would send your spirit now. And that you would inhabit your word. Uh, God, we are going to be looking at a particular topic that we find embodied in this passage. And I'm asking God as we consider this issue of persecution that somehow by the wisdom of your spirit you draw connections. Between that and whatever it is that each of us might be facing in daily life today. It might at first seem remote or even irrelevant, but it's not, because it's a matter of the gospel and of the God of grace. And so give us maybe new perspective, Uh, give us a new vision of Christ, a new vision of ourselves, the church that you're building, what you're doing around the world, something even larger than ourselves. Do what you will do today in these moments and do your will in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Each month, 160 Christians around the world are detained without trial and imprisoned for their faith in Christ. Each month, 104 brothers and sisters in Christ are abducted. Kidnapped. 66 churches are attacked, their properties destroyed. Each month, 255 Christians are killed for being followers of Jesus. This persecution is perpetrated by governments, neighbors, and in many cases, family members in more than 60 countries around the world, the worst of which include North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, and many others. And the numbers that I just cited don't include the less measurable, less measurable, but no less painful experience of social ostracism denial of education, loss of employment, forfeiture of hereditary rights, and much, much more. This morning, I start with these statistics not to be sensational, nor to simply suggest that the experience of suffering for Christ can be reduced to numbers alone. Rather, I cite them to remind us in concrete terms that persecution is a daily reality for many brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Of course, it was a flesh and blood reality for Christians in the early church in the first century as well as we're reminded here today in our reading from the books, book of Acts, chapter 16. Here in the city of Philippi, the Apostle Paul and Silas, after some ministry that they had conducted there in that town, they are falsely accused. They are stripped and beaten by a crowd. They're unjustly imprisoned. There's much to learn from this passage, much more than we have time this morning to go over. I'd encourage you to read it and study it yourselves. Much to learn here, but let me simply make a few brief observations this morning. First of all, notice how Paul and Silas are imprisoned Because the gospel was bad business for human trafficking. What was it that got them into trouble in the first place? Well, there was a female slave who had some kind of a demonic spirit that enabled her to predict the future. We don't know exactly what nature of prediction this was and what her powers looked like. But therefore, according to verse 16, she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Paul and Silas deliver her from her spiritual oppression. Praise God. She was spiritually free, but that also meant, therefore, she lost her fortune-telling abilities. And so we're told in verse 19 that when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, that's when they seized Paul and Silas. When their hope of making money was gone. You see, in this case, they weren't mad about the preaching of Christ's name. They were mad about the loss of financial gain. The liberating love of Jesus for this slave girl, right then and there, disrupted this local system of spiritual bondage and of economic exploitation. And when the idols of the city, the people's prosperity and power, are threatened, all hell breaks loose. Listen, these people certainly, at least formally speaking, were worshippers of Roman gods. And yet here we have exposed before the public eyes what and which their true gods really were. When the idols of the city, the people's prosperity and power, are threatened, all hell breaks loose. Listen. Hostility and persecution rises when the Christian gospel challenges the false gods of the culture. That was the case then in Philippi. The gods exposed, as it were. I wonder what those might be here in our city. In our culture. In our time. Number two. Observation number two, Paul and Silas, you notice they demonstrate a surprising love. Even for those who seek to harm them. There was a big earthquake. We read about it. The prison doors fly open. Everyone's chains come loose. We're told in verse 26. So the jailer is certain that he's going to be held responsible for this supernatural jailbreak. And so he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. After all, in due time, one way or another, he was going to be killed. And at this moment, we're told in verse 28, Paul cried out in a loud voice, Serves you right, make it quick. Is that what he said? No. Paul, with shocking compassion. Compassion you can't find nowhere, but from the heart of Christ himself. With a heart of compassion for his enemy. Shouts, not whispers, shouts loud and clear to change his mind and his will do not harm yourself and he tells him about Jesus and the philippian jailer believed and later this jailer even fed them and washed paul and silas's wounds loving them because they first loved him yeah. The nation of Eritrea is by some measures the sixth most oppressive country in the world for Christians. One Eritrean Christian named Esther recently said this, as Christians, we are required to love our enemies, even though it is very difficult to do that when they make you suffer or when they harm or kill your loved one. That's not a platitude coming out of her mouth and from her heart. Of course, Sister Esther is simply echoing the words of Jesus himself when in Matthew 5 he said, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In fact, Jesus himself prayed, you know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing, referring to the very ones who had just impaled him with nails on a Roman cross. You see, the book of Acts again and again actually is the story of the spirit of Jesus replicating in his followers the very life of Jesus. Doing the things that he did and does. Saying the things that he says and said. So what do we have here but this? The persecuted are called and empowered to love with the same love with which they have been loved in Christ. Enemy love. Which is, of course, gospel love. Even for you and me. What? Is the weapon of the persecuted? It's love for their persecutors. Number three. Third observation. Paul and Silas protest injustice. Did you notice this? We're told in verses 35 and 36 that the charges were dropped against them by the city's magistrates. Paul and Silas were told that they can just go and go in peace, go in peace after all that. And how does Paul respond? Uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> Look at verse 37. Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial. Remember, in the Roman world, uh, legal order was a big deal. So he's appealing to their own sense of the importance of law and due process. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. No. Let them come themselves and escort us out which the magistrates eventually did with apology. See, listen to this. Jesus told us not to be surprised by suffering. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, he says in John 15:20. The apostle Peter taught us to suffer righteously, as we read in 1 Peter chapters 3 and four but here's one more thing that paul and silas teach us here in Acts 16 faithful endurance of persecution by the persecuted and the pursuit of justice for the persecuted are not at odds let me say that again Faithful endurance by the persecuted and the pursuit of justice for the persecuted are not at odds. It is right to pray for our brothers and sisters' resilience and for their rescue. Hebrews 13.3 tells us, Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And also labor for their release. It's right to love them in prayer. It's right to love them by laboring for justice. But even prior to or in the absence of their rescue, we must notice our fourth and final observation. And it is this. Strangely, Paul and Silas sing in the midst of their suffering. I mean, here's the prison scene that's described in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Faith. Worship, prayer, fellowship, even evangelism, enemy love. All the basic elements of Christian faithfulness were present right there in the prison. Perhaps here's the lesson. It is possible. It is possible to be faithful to Christ. Even in the blood stained margins of society. This is something that we need to learn from our persecuted sisters and brothers. We must pray for them as Scripture calls us to. We must pray for them, yes. But, beloved, we must also be mentored by them. Discipled by them. We need the persecuted church. And, in fact, we need to also see them not simply as the persecuted, but also as the persevering church. Far too many Christians in our country are panicking as christian faith and culture become increasingly decentered in american society we must keep in mind that throughout its history if we are careful students of the history of christianity throughout its history the church has always flourished most when it has clung to social power least. Beloved, it is possible to be faithful in the margins. And so we look to our suffering brothers and sisters as models of faithfulness under fire. And we find in them a reflection of the one who was born in the margins, lived in the margins, and was even crucified for our sins literally in the margins outside the city gates which is the point that the writer of Hebrews 13:3 is making when he says there therefore let us go to Jesus outside the camp outside the city gates into the margins and bear the disgrace he endured let us go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the disgrace that he endured. And let us remember our brothers and sisters who have gone there before us. And so we pray for them and we honor them and learn from them and imitate them as they themselves imitate. Our suffering Savior. Let's pray. Jesus. We pray for these brothers and sisters today. Those languishing. Living. Enduring. Faithfully. In North Korea. In Afghanistan. Somalia. In Sudan and Eritrea in Syria, Pakistan, these are not simply people suffering at a distance. These are family members in Christ. they are our brothers, our sisters. When one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers, and so we grieve and mourn and suffer with them, even as we wrestle in prayer even as we feel so often at a loss of what to do we pray for them we pray for their protection lord jesus protect them from harm today physically emotionally psychologically relationally economically in all the ways that we know the enemy would creatively seek to harm them we pray that you would renew their trust in the unbreakable promises of Christ. That you would give them grace today to persevere for another day until the day you return. We pray that you would give that counterintuitive, mind-boggling grace for them to love their enemy. That through their love, people might have a window into the deep love of Jesus for them in the gospel. We pray for justice as well. We pray for the release. We pray for the changing of laws. We pray for the the timely tearing down of oppressive regimes. We pray for the world, even unbeknownst to themselves, to make ways for the release of prisoners, of captives to be set free. We pray for justice and equity, but we pray again that even in the face of suffering, that these brothers and sisters would cling to the cross and to the resurrection, that you would be their sure hope and that you would draw near to them in a way that they would know that even to this day, even in their darkest nights, you have never left them. You have never forsaken them. Be Emmanuel unto them all over again today and hear our prayers in this humble gathering here. Let our prayers, our faith, our longings rise up to your throne of grace on their behalf. Please answer these prayers for your glory, Jesus, and for the good of our persecuted brothers and sisters. We commit them into your strong hands and we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, amen, amen. Amen. Well, she's already up here, and I want to introduce our guest presenter here today. Karen Ellis writes and lectures on theology, human rights, global religious freedom. She was recently named the Robert Canada Fellow for World Christianity at Reform Theological Seminary she also serves as president and co-founder of the Makazi Institute Six, since 2006 she has collaborated with the Swiss based nonprofit charity International Christian Response Karen holds a master of art in religion from Westminster Theological Seminary and also holds a master of fine arts from the Yale School of Drama. Yes, she has headlined, in fact, at the Kennedy Center down the street here. We don't have time for it today, but maybe next time we can ask her to sing for us. Karen is currently a PhD candidate of missiology at the Oxford University Center for Mission Studies. And personally, I'm also honored to call her a friend. Karen has been among the greatest influences for me, on my own learning about religious freedom and global persecution, which is why I'm so thrilled to be able to share her with you today and so thrilled that you would be so kind to join us, sister, a real honor and an encouragement to us that you'd be here. Thank you for being here. Let's all welcome Karen. together. <laughs>
2: What more can I say than to you has been said? (laughs) Thank you, Bishop Kwon. (laughs) For that wonderful exposition of Acts 16. Um, It reminds me of the story of a uh, Korean sister who, uh, by God's hand, was able to defect from uh, a work camp in North Korea. And she would tell a story. About how the only place that she was safe to have her own private worship time, her own church in the camp, was in the latrine. It was the only place where she had enough privacy where the guards wouldn't come in and beat them. And so she would silently sing. And praise God. The God, that she, the God of the universe as she understood him. In the stench. It became a tabernacle. Because his presence decorated her worship space. In prisoners' chains With bleeding stripes Paul and Silas Prayed that night And in their pain Began to sing Their chains were loose and they were free. They sang, I bless your name. I bless
1: your
2: name. I give you all I bless your name. Now it's a little crowded up here uh, because uh, I've brought 200 million uh, brothers and sisters with me this morning as I represent them. Uh, so pardon me if we kind of jostle against each other. There are so many stories that want to be told. Um, 200 million Christians face persecution. And prison is a common experience for many living under anti-Christian hostility. Uh, I want to thank you for the prayer night that you had. Your prayers matter. Your prayers are powerful. And they empower people to endure and persevere under hostile circumstances. Uh, The story about uh, Acts 16 is is—it's insane. If you look at all the little nuggets that are embedded in that story of the power of the community, the power of God's faithfulness, the power of people's prayers, the power of the testimony and witness of suffering for the name of Jesus. It's an amazing little chock-full passage of the beauty of the church. Now, y'all heard my bio. I'm really reformed. (laughs) But when I hear stories From my friends in Iran, when they say, we read the book of Acts, and then we walk out in the street, and it comes to life. I realize that my doctrine can't limit what God is going to do. And how he's going to move in and through his people around the world. I have a friend named Ali Bualu, who is serving as part of the King's Secret Service in Morocco, uh, and he was imprisoned for his faith for roughly three to four months. Uh, his crime, the only crime, was secretly following Christ. When you're in solitary, you have to keep your mind active, which is very difficult because in solitary, time expands and the mind wanders. So he meditated on whatever scripture his young Christian mind could recall. And he just kept recalling snippets of the word over and over again and snippets of songs he had caught. He often imagined his wife's face in the process, the faces of his children. He thought of the faith of others he had encountered in illegal Morocco. And he began to pray for them all. And eventually he recalled something that an underground brother had put in his hands just two months before. You have to understand Morocco is a land where all the media is controlled. Everything that comes in and goes out of the country is monitored. And somehow, into Ali's hands fell a copy of Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Though that letter was addressed to a specific issue in a place and a people and a time, Ali thought... He was going through all the things that he could hold on to in hope. He thought if if Martin Luther King could bear the solitude of a prison cell and occupy his mind enough to write this opus, then perhaps he could too. And it helped remind Ali that there are some things worth dying for. For Dr. King, that was justice and racial equality. For Ali, it was the name of Jesus Christ. And it shouldn't surprise us that the global persecuted church takes incredibly comfort from the African-American Christian experience in the States. It's not unusual to see a family resemblance to the global underground. In Pakistan, there was just a high-profile case from a woman named Asiya Bibi. You may have seen it in the last few weeks. She had been on death row for nine years for blaspheming the name of Muhammad the prophet, that she was falsely accused, they decided. But the small Christian population lives under a system called dimitude. It's a second-class status that operates very much like Jim Crow in the old American South. Now, there's a reason for these similarities. Satan's hatred for the people of God, which goes all the way back to the Garden often expresses itself the same way throughout history. And evil in every epoch takes a similar shape. The African-American preacher, much like Christians around the world today, repeatedly endured flogging just to tend his flock. It was legislated laws that would limit hundreds of itinerant enslaved Christian preachers from shepherding their congregations on their surrounding plantations. Punishment for their offense was 20 to 30 lashes on the bare back. If you were to go back in your own family, this is my family history, I'm an African-American woman, and y'all can talk back to me too, I'm used to that, okay? So don't be, don't be shy. If you were to go back in your own family history, if you found a group of people or a person who professed the name of Christ, you would probably find someone who had been persecuted for their faith somewhere in the world. Sometimes even persecuted by people who called themselves Christians. Where does does persecution come from? We're going to unpack this a little bit more in uh, the Sunday school lesson. But the bottom line is for this morning, Satan really only has a handful of tricks. As creatures who are creating God's image, man, we are very very creative with the materials, the raw materials God's given us to work with, right? God is unlimited in his creativity. He speaks ex nihilo and boom, it's there. That's how all of this got here, right? So he says, okay, mankind, you're going to create after my pattern, but you're going to be limited. You won't have infinite creativity, but you can be very creative with the materials that I've given you. Think about the music scale." Just 13 notes on the western scale. And yet new music is constantly made from these endless possibilities. That's just the western scale. Satan is a different kind of creature. He's finitely creative because God has mercifully limited him. Remember Job. The same tricks, the same temptations, the same personal and communal dominance and oppressions, the same government systems throughout redemptive history. Satan is uncreative, he is unimaginative, and he's limited because God has limited him. Oh, but he rules the world, you say. Yes, but because of God's sovereignty, he can only do so much destruction because God has said this far, And no more. If this is the case then. Why is he so effective at what he does? He's uncreative. But he's really good at marketing. He just repackages the same thing from age to age. And why does he trouble God's people? Adam and woman in the garden. Created for God's good pleasure. This has been going on for a very long time. Why? God's people were given a mandate to subdue and fill the earth with more of God's people. If Adam and woman had been obedient in that, in the way that God had said, we would encroach on Satan's territory. So he said, i got to put a stop to this. And that is the way it is today. He still says to these Christian communities, I am going to constrain you so that you cannot make more people who live by the story, I will be your God and you will be my people. He's still trying to limit it today. The amazing thing is, Satan kind of (laughs) dumb. Because he doesn't realize that he's creating the very environment that creates more of God's kingdom people. As we consider events overseas, we come into contact then with some very familiar territory. We start to get this sense of deja vu, like we've been here before. These things sound vaguely familiar. So it was with us throughout history, with African-American Christians and the ethical Europeans and indigenous people of the Americas who sympathized with them, who also claimed Christ, so it is with them around the world today. Because of Satan's repeated lack of creativity, let me just give you three similarities, three points of contact between our U.S. church history and the global church. First point of contact, legislated oppression— The greatest tactic that governments imposed on oppressed religious groups is to legislate their inferior position in society. One example, following the slave revolts in the early 19th century, the Commonwealth of Virginia passed a law requiring black congregations to meet only in the presence of a white minister. And then other states began to enact similar legislation. This meant that freedom of assembly a constitutional right was limited for a portion of the Christian population on these shores. Same thing in Morocco today. China, Saudi Arabia, India, Indonesia, Kazakhstan, Libya, North Korea, many that have already been mentioned today in the Middle East live under these Jim Crow-like legislated societies of oppression, even though Jim Crow would come later. A second point of contact, secret meetings we've all heard the stories of Christians in plantations area slaves organized underground churches and hidden religious meetings we hear a lot about the underground railroad but we don't hear a lot about the underground church but it existed it was an invisible church and the underground churches provided the same thing that they provide today for global Christians a refuge From the harsh system that had limited how and when and where they could worship their God. Regular Sunday worship in the local church was paralleled by these illicit or informal prayer meetings on weeknights and in the slave cabins. They went to the hush harbors where they would drape uh, wet blankets over their heads so that they could sing quietly. And if somebody got happy, somebody sitting next to him had to clap their hand over the mouth, or else <laughs> my husband would have never survived in the underground church. He's just, he's, he's a talkbacker. He's a bye, bye, bye. If y'all know him, you've heard him. They would, but in, in order to, to escape detection in these secluded places, the woods, the gullies, the ravines, and the thickets, aptly called the hush harbors, hush. Very much the same today in 50 different countries on the world watch list from open doors. The silent worship in house churches, very much like the worship in the gullies and the ravines. Uh, One of my friends in Iran says that in some of their house churches, they worship, they sing like this. And that's their worship. Bibles and other Christian, illegal Christian materials are often today hidden in tree branches. Or buried underground so that when they come back to the place of worship, they can dig it up and find it and worship together again. Christians today, at any given moment that you look at your clock or your watch... Somebody is worshiping God in an illegal country. Third point of contact, making it illegal to possess the word in written form or forbidding and controlling education. There is a copy of the Slave Master's Bible that now sits in the Museum of the Bible. Its distinction is that all of the verses discussing and defining freedom have been cut out, gone, Edited and God warns us about messing with his word in John's prophecy and revelation. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book talking about the book of Revelation, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. How much more must this apply to all the books that make up the great book called the Bible? Look at that right there. In areas today like North Korea, even as visitors like Kenneth Ba were incarcerated for possessing a Bible or other Christian materials. According to Open Doors, Bibles remain the number one request from closed countries. There's a video online, you can Google it fairly easily, of Chinese believers opening a box of Bibles for the first time. And they're... They, the excitement of the arrival of the box. Everybody's just chattering, chattering. And then as the box is opened, a hush falls. And then they begin to cry. And each one takes a Bible out of the box and they pass them around. Some of them are kissing it. I have 15 Bibles in my library at home. This is a group of people who oftentimes will just have one book that's copied by hand and passed around from region to region. It's amazing to think that in spite of these obstacles and these conditions, the body of Christ expands. Why? Because God is infinite in his creativity and he's limited Satan in his. (laughs) Satan's opposition is a petri dish that plays host for the bacteria of the gospel to grow and spread and organically come to life. And God is not limited by anything his creature Satan does to suppress men and women coming to know him or to suppress the word of God from going forth. Question for you. How many churches are there in Washington, D.C.? How many churches are there in the world?
1: Millions.
2: Millions? What's that? One. One. This begs the same question Jesus asked when he walked the earth Who are my mothers and my brothers? The most, the, the pastor shared some incredible statistics, and I've thrown out some numbers as well, just to try and give you a framework of the scope of the number of people that we're talking about that are related to us and living under conditions like these. But out of all the numbers that we will discuss today, the most important number for the Christian believer to remember is one. It is the number that defines who we are, how we move, and how we respond to Christian persecution. But you, Grace Meridian Hill, you have not fallen asleep. You know these things. You feel the body. There's a condition called, um, it's actually a physical condition called analgesia, where people there are people who are born with this condition and they can't feel their extremities. So all of life is a hazard for them. They break their bones. They get huge bruises. They're constantly in the hospital. And as they get older, if their internal organs start to fail, they can't feel that either. So they're always just one step away from dying. They're always in the hospital. And it's a rare condition, but the church in America, in the West, sort of has this spiritual analgesia where we can't feel the rest of the body. We can't feel it when it hurts. That's not you. That's not you. And I want to put Grace Mosaic on an inside track today. I've brought uh, more prayer maps for you. Um, There's an opportunity at the table over there for you to sign up to receive stories and updates of what God is accomplishing through these extraordinary and yet- Strangely normal, normative circumstances through saints around the world that you will never see on the news. So there are some green sheets over by the sign as you came in. You can sign up to receive these updates. Just give us your name and your email address. We will not abuse it, but you will get some incredible stories. And you'll also get firsthand information. You'll know when someone is about to be released, you'll get inside information on um, how some of the legal cases are being handled. There's one last thing I want to leave you with. As you press into becoming more and more aware of the body of Christ around the world, there's one mistake that a lot of people, a lot of us in the West make. And it's, a, it's an understandable mistake. Don't regard the persevering church with pity. Regard them with a compassionate identification. We are to identify with them as we are one. John 15 through 17. Their experience is actually closer to what Christ told us we would experience. And amidst their sorrow, and there is a lot to cry about. I'm not going to lie. I I go to counseling just on the basis of the things that I see and hear. I can't imagine experiencing some of the things that they experience. But amidst their sorrow, they have joy. As they are the persecuted church, they are also the persevering church. It's like what Pastor was talking about, those two sides of the same coin, justice and yet endurance, perseverance and yet persecution. And amidst our own difficulties, our light, all of them God calls our light and momentary afflictions, they can teach us what it means to have what I call a yet testimony. Now, this is where we're going to have to go black church. I'm going to need some help on this. The operative word is yet. Y'all got it? Here we go. Listen to David's yet testimony. Psalm 37, 25. I was young and now I'm old. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. Listen to Paul's yet testimony, 2 Timothy 1, 11 through 12. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yes. I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him for that day. Job has a yet testimony, Job 13, 14 through 15. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. And Habakkuk has a yet testimony. Though the fig tree does not bud, And though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. So much to learn. Their story is not just the story of the book of Acts. Their story is the story of the people of God from Genesis to 2018 to Revelation 21. This is the story of the people of the Bible. And I thank you on behalf of the 200 million that have joined me today. I thank you for being a community of people who have entered into the story of the people of God, amen, amen. Amen. Amen.